Hello, and welcome to the Heilman and Haver Stage and Screen Podcast, coming to you from Casa de Quinn Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we'll bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, and interview talented local actors and directors. Today, we welcome to the show the man who introduced us, actor and director, and our friend, Jeffrey Bassett. Jeffrey first stepped on stage in 1973 as the child lead Winthrop Peru in The Music Man. Since then, he has taken, uh, taken part in over 50 shows, mostly musicals, at over 20 different theaters. Jeffrey's other passion is the law. He's been in the field since 1985 and took the bench as a judge in Kitsap County in 2016 by gubernatorial appointment. He's a family man, married for 16 years to Michael, his partner for 28 years, and is the father to three boys. Jeffrey most recently appeared on stage for Paradise Theater's Annie, where he returned to, uh, to his role as Daddy Warbucks. Along with acting, he's also worked as a stage manager, set designer, and builder, as an assistant director, and has fully directed 10 plays, many for Bremerton Community Theater, where in 2018 he took a chance on one Greg Heilman and Matt Haver, casting them as brothers in Agatha Christie's A Point With Death. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to have you here. Now, Greg, you've worked with Jeffrey prior to us working together with Jeffrey. Absolutely, yep. In, in Mousetrap, 2017, I guess it would be. Wow. Time flies. Another yeah. Agatha Christie show. Yes. I like Agatha Christie. I, I, we're going to get to some questions about Agatha okay. a little later during our, our cocktail Keep uh, us in suspense. segment. That's right. Okay. <laughs> so we, we talked a little bit about your background in theater. Um, you said uh, that you actually had seen a show. Before you started out in The Music Man, you had gone and seen a show, and that's what got you interested in theater to begin with. Right. My mom took me to see Oliver at the what is now, I guess, the Barry University Community Theater. And uh, I just, I loved it. And she asked me if I wanted to do something like that. And I said, yes. And the very next play was a music band. So I auditioned and got the role. And and where's that theater at? Uh, That was actually in Miami, Miami, Florida. There is a Miami, Ohio. So it's like, (laughs) so what made you transition? So um, you've acted and then you transitioned obviously to directing. What inspired you to make that transition? I think it's just a natural growth thing you know it's it's kind of the same thing that I made from going from attorney to judge you know you've done it so long you've honed your craft you want to stretch out you want to figure out what else is there that I haven't tried and you know I I decided to try stage managing first and I like doing that uh, you know telling people where to be making sure I was following the script making sure we had our props where they needed to be um, just that kind of um, control I don't want to say I'm a control freak. I'm not a control freak, but just trying to trying to get everything where it needed to be to have something run properly. Do you find that your experience as an actor and then stage manager helped inform the way you are as a director? Does it give you kind of a, a perspective having done some of those other roles? Well, you know, being a director was still a very difficult thing to do. I mean, it was still... Um, I mean, I've worked with a lot of different directors, and nobody does it the same way. So certainly I had to develop my own style as a director. And you only get there by you know, working with some very talented people. I've worked with some horrible directors, horrible directors. And those are hopefully the things I won't do um, that, I, that I picked up from them. And then I've worked some, with some wonderful directors. Uh, for example, I, maybe I shouldn't drop names, but I'm going to drop oh, names. Oh, please Let do. Drop names. Please do. Pavlina Morris, uh, who was uh, working with Changing Scene Theater. Um, I would say Pavlina, I, when I was doing Torch, Torch Song Trilogy, a Harvey Firestein play. And I said, um, I just, I don't like, you know, we've got this small stage and I don't like this, you know, I have to walk. If I have to turn my back and come around here, I have to turn my back on the audience. And she said, then turn your back on the audience. And you think, wait a minute, well, people don't tend to walk sideways and then walk backwards to get... And this is the way we've all been taught. You know, you direct, you talk straight out to the audience and, and you, you don't, you know, look at other people to the side, but that's what we do in real life. And uh, so I learned there's nothing wrong with that. You don't want to keep your back to the audience always, but there's nothing wrong with an occasional because it's what we do. So I picked up where I could what I thought was useful and dropped what I thought I didn't like and I think I'm getting better at it over time. So. 
I miss I miss acting um, because I've been doing so much directing, but I, I, I love directing as well. Well, one of the, the interesting things when we did Appointment with Death together was that you ended up filling in for a role, acting yes. in the play as well as directing. So, you know, along those lines of, of bringing those two things together, what challenges are there in directing yourself? Telling myself I'm not good enough. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, no, it's it's learning to I, I had to be able to trust my stage manager to understand my vision and to fulfill that so and of course I had the most fabulous stage manager anybody could have I mean I had Tamara Bale and to I, I remember standing up there and saying now Tamara I need you to make sure that I'm you know in the right places can I be seen um, you know anything you need to tell me and being able to put my uh, to have a little hubris, um, a little humility, and being able to take criticism if I needed it. You know, because being a director, you, you like to think, there are some directors you don't argue with. And mm -hmm. I've always been more for a community standard of directing where I have people say, look, you know, let me know if something doesn't feel right. Well, I wanted to also make sure I'm not that kind of director who's going to have a head that can't get through the stage and be able to tell somebody else, look, you know, I'm up here now. I can't see how I look down there. I need you to tell me. I'm, I'm turning it over. Now, you, you talk about your directing style as not being a control freak. Um, how well, would you, oh, or, that's, or that's what you aspire well, to. <laughs> well, that's true. I, it doesn't mean I don't have my hands in every aspect of the play, but I like to hopefully... Um, welcome uh, critique and welcome input. And okay, and that, and that leads to our next question: How would you define the role of a director? Now, do you see yourself, your job, as molding an actor to your vision for the character, or do you like to allow the the, the actors themselves to create the character and and give them that creative freedom on stage? Or maybe it's a mix, or maybe it's a little more with certain people, or maybe certain shows demand more. Well. In one style than another. For example, Greg, when we did Mousetrap, I had, I didn't have a specific image of the husband, but I knew certain things I wanted from him, and I pushed him for those. Um, for you, for example, when we were doing um, um, come back, go go back for go back for murder, right? Come back last go year. Back. Yeah, <laughs> go back for murder. Yes, I'm almost sixty. It goes away, you know. But when we were doing that. Um, I let you run with it because mm -hmm. I'd already had you in a play for a year. I knew what you were capable of. Uh, and you actually surprised me because your character was so totally different from your personality. Um, I think, you know, I did a play once with Katrina, uh, Lenore Hodiak and, uh, well, or Katrina Hodiak Baxter, depending on which name she uses. She's the daughter of Ann Baxter mm. and John Hodiak, very famous acting family and she played my mother in Torch Song and she directed me in um, Murder on the Nile mm. or is it Death on the Nile one's, one's called Murder Death on the, the Nile the book oh. or the play it depends <laughs> and uh, I always get those confused myself <laughs> yes and I played I played um, uh, uh, um, Pennyfather um, not Reverend Pennyfather but I don't remember exactly um, but I was this reserved priest and she kept pushing me that she wanted more and more and more she wanted effusive and I was like I didn't feel that so at a certain point when you get to know the actor you have to trust the actor to interpret the character but I spend a lot of time with these plays analyzing the characters talking to the actors about the characters about what I think about the character I remember for example when we did uh, Mousetrap I talked to uh, Ronnie Wolf mm -hmm. the sister uh, I don't remember what the character's name was but I said do you think she might be a lesbian is it important the same with Chris Chris was playing um, uh, his character with the yellow pants and Chris I, Jones Chris Jones and, and I don't remember the name Christopher Wren Christopher Wren yeah. that's right because it was after the builder but that's not really his name and we don't know what his real name is but again the same sort of question do you think maybe he's gay maybe maybe that's why he had a problem in the military was he a deserter because he was gay was he a deserter for other reasons and trying to get the actors to think beyond the two dimensional character to understand more of the character themselves and bring it out if I trust the actor enough 
you know, as long as we're on the same page as far as, you know, okay, this is how I see the character and I'll discuss it with you. What do you think? And then I let you, you ran with it. You ran with it. So, uh, pre-casting, when you pick a show or throw your hat in the ring for a certain show. Dirty word. <laughs> but it happens. The term that shall not be named on this podcast. No, it, it happens. One pull of the bailey, yes. It does happen. Precasting happens. I do not precast. I have never precast. I have pre-thought a cast. Mm-hmm. I have had ideas. That's of, an interesting differentiation to make, I, I think, the pre-thinking versus pre-casting, because I'm sure there are probably directors that have an exact cast or at oh, least some roles in their mind before. There are directors that I've gotten to the theater. Um, one of the directors, I won't mention his name, but um, he was very clear, this part's already taken, this part's already taken. We hadn't even mm-hmm. done, done auditions yet, and these parts were taken. And the problem when you do that is you have talent that you've never met before right? who blows you away. Uh, uh, Irene Bach, mm-hmm. my kid's elementary school teacher, blew me away. Blew me away. I would have never thought to have cast her in that part. So it's fine to say I have a conception of this character or that character. Uh, I have an idea about who I'd like to see in this role. Um, I've done that with several several people that I've said, I could use this person, I could use that person, this would be my dream cast, but it's open casting for me. It's open casting. You know, and, and like I was talking about, um, playing Canon Pennyfather, that's the correct name. When I played that role, uh, Katrina did not see me in that role. Hmm. She didn't see me in it at all, and I said, I'd like to read for it. And I ended up getting the role. So you have to keep an open mind. It's okay to say, um, why don't you read for this? But every time I do auditions, I'm, they're entirely open. I've never, ever pre, pre-cast any play, and I won't. I assume it also has a lot to do, especially in this area, with availability. We struggle a lot with casting men. A lot of men won't come out. And I know that that's stuck talking to other directors. I know that's been a challenge. I'd love to do this show. I think we've had that conversation. We'd love to do the producers or whatever, oh, but yeah. we just can't get enough men to sing and dance. Yeah. Well, I'll use a non PG 13 term. It's actually, I call it the penis factor. If you have a penis, you get a part. And unfortunately <laughs> there aren't enough. There are not, it's true. Any guy. And that's the biggest, the biggest concern that we've got in this County is any guy can get a part in a play. There just aren't enough roles for women. And so guys are scarce. And every time I cast a play, I end up scrounging, trying to find out who knows a guy. Who knows a guy? Please, somebody. That's how I got you. That's how I got you. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is because I ask people, who knows somebody? I need a, I need a body. And it's, it's worked out great. So the call is going out. Any guys out there listening who are giving it some thought, come and try out. When we get things rolling again after COVID. Absolutely. Come on out. So... In an audition, what what do you, th- in your mind, what helps an actor, especially someone who's new, stand out from their peers? As, as a new actor myself, coming in, meeting people who you obviously can tell have done this before, who maybe know the director, know the stage manager, et cetera, it's intimidating. Mm. You know, how do you come in and, and you know, make uh, just appear different from everybody who's there who may have so much more experience than you do? Is there something that an actor can do that, to set themselves apart Research. I never would go to any play unless I've done some research, at least as far as what is the play about, who are the characters, um, you know, just have some. I mean, maybe I won't have a time to read a play, but you know, theaters like uh, uh, BCT actually make the books available weeks beforehand so you can check them out. But you can do Wikipedia, you can get uh, on. Uh, YouTube and look up any other production that's been done by a high school or by a community theater or, or, or a movie if there's a movie version of the play and you can see you know what the parts are and you can get a good idea about what you're up for um, I really think that as well as showing your flexibility in being able to read for more than just one part People go in and they're like, I only want this part. Okay, if that's where you're coming from, be honest about it, but don't be upset if I don't give you another part because you said that's all you wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just be willing to show how flexible you are reading different parts. And sometimes the director will see something they didn't see and then maybe you didn't know you were going to give them. So when you are directing and there's um, 
large scale things that you can be proud of as a director, but what is something that's on, on maybe a smaller scale? So by larger scale, I mean, I love the way the show is turned out or, or the, the sets meet my vision or something like that. But is there something at a smaller, more granular level that, that makes you feel really accomplished as a director, that, that kind of feeling that, yes, this is exactly what, you know, I, I wanted to get out of this or something like that. Well, actually I'm sitting down with two examples which is having actors who haven't done theater who come in to do a play and then are just so into the process that they end up coming back. That is about the best thing any director could hope for is inspiring somebody to do another play, inspiring them to, to try out for something else. Um, you know, I mean, I've had out of the plays I've directed the most amazing thing that I ever thought it was such a stupid thing for me to be excited about was that when I did Mousetrap, I got a great review from Michael Moore about the sound effects because I had done all those sound effects and I was just so you know, into making sure they were absolutely perfect. And he gave me a rave review about the sound effects. And I was like, oh, that's cool. But, but inspiring other um, actors to come back to try something different. What's something that you know now that you wish you'd known when you first started acting or or directing for that matter? What's something that really has stuck with you throughout the process, your evolution in either of those roles? Hmm. What do I know now that I wish I had known before? Then I got a face for radio. No. <laughs> no. Well, then you're in the right place. Hey, it's 2020. This is podcasting now. Face there for podcasting. Go. There you go. Podcast. No, um, I really don't know. Um, I think the only thing I know now is that I could have done this could have directed years earlier if I'd been given a chance and the encouragement. And I think that's the important thing. The one thing most of these theaters are missing, most of the community theaters in this county are missing, is um, a mentoring program to get other people to learn how to do these other things, such as directing, how to learn how to build a set. Uh, you don't get into that until all of a sudden we need people because we're in the middle of doing a, a play. You don't get um, enough opportunity to learn how to stage manage, to learn how to direct, to learn how to design a set, to learn how to do costuming. Uh, it's, you know, I had to scrounge. I had to learn a lot about, I still haven't learned enough about lighting. Um, so that's something I'm still in the process of learning. Uh, but just, uh, you know, I wish there were more opportunity. I wish it was more of a mentoring program at the theaters. And I wish some of these theaters, frankly, need to open up and not have just one person directing everything or two people directing everything. It's, it's not fair to the concept of community. Is there a naturally, you, you described it in your own life, natural progression, attorney to judge, actor to director. Do you think there is a natural progression that is expected in the community that you act for a certain number of years, then you stage manage, then you assistant direct, then you direct? Or can someone walk in, maybe even right off the street brand new, and say, this is, this is what I think I'd be good at, this is what I have an aptitude for, can I jump in at a certain level? Well, that depends on the theater. Um, you know, I had uh, wanted to direct and one of the theaters, and I'm not going to go into names of the theaters because I don't want to, you know, badmouth anybody, but one of the theaters had unwritten rules to get to be a director. You had to go through certain stages. There were unwritten rules. Um, and I thought, frankly, at the time, they were unfairly used against me uh, because I followed all the rules and I still didn't get to direct. And it wasn't until a few years later with a different board that suddenly um, they came asking. So I don't know. I, I A lot of the theaters will have some expectation about you as far as your involvement in the theater um, beyond being an actor. Are you a team player? Are you going to help with set building? Are you... Uh, you know, just going to be a prissy actor who does his acting and doesn't want to do anything else? Or are you going to help out with things? Um, are you going to um, come in for other theater things? Are you going to be a member of the board? Are you going to be a member of the um, a, a, a community member, paying member for the theater itself? Uh, you know, how involved are you going to be? Um, is it an investment they can use? Because that's what it is to them, is an investment. Mm -hmm. Um, but some of the theaters, unfortunately, they're very, very stoic, very regimented on how they do things. 
and there's just not that opportunity. Specifically acting, what words of wisdom do you have for first-time actors? Uh, I've been there rather recently, Greg as, as well. Yep. Um, and we want to encourage people to turn out. Right. What what things can, like you said, research? That's really important. Learn, learn, well, learn the show, learn the things. characters. Yeah, I mean, you have to research. Um, you have to, it's the old, ex, the old expression, keep your hopes up, your expectations, you know, hopes high, expectations low. Um, I don't think a new actor coming out for the first time should be expecting to get a lead role. It happened to me at the age of 12. That was unbelievable. Uh, not expected. But I think you have to ease your way into this. I think the theater needs to get to know you as much as you get to know the theater. It took me, it took me a while at BCT to go from, you know, little bit parts to bigger parts um paradise i didn't get the lead roles for quite some time and then all of a sudden it was lead role lead role lead role lead role you know constant um same with city stock so it's a matter of they need to get to know who you are they need to get some trust and a, and a new actor needs to be thick-skinned um needs to be open to and understanding that they are going to be i don't want to use the word criticized but just um instructed constructively um, directed directed that's what it's about they're yeah. they're being directed and that means that there's a, a degree of you know critique let's just not call it criticism let's call it critique of, of their work and they have to be open to that and they have to be open to trying things a different way um I'm sure Greg would agree with me on this, but as a new actor coming in, and I, I was very lucky to get to work with you my first two shows, ah. uh, I think that you strike a really great balance between There's directing... My head's going up. <laughs> <laughs> Loosen those headphones. Yeah. But I think that for me, it was comforting to have direction because I didn't know what I was doing up there. I had an idea. I'd read the book. I'd read the screenplay. I had an idea what this character was about. I kind of had an idea where they fit in the cast and the overall storyline, but I took comfort in that... I guess that having those parameters set for me, this is what we're looking for. And tell me what you want and I can do it. Right. And I mean, there were instances, for example, with Greg, when we were doing Mousetrap and I was like, Greg, you know, I, I would get as, as anal as saying, this is how it would be pronounced because it's a British play. We're going to do it with British accents. Can you do a British accent? Okay. If you have any trouble with a British accent, I can still cast you, but I need you to listen to what I'm telling you. We're going to say, I might have been, not I might have been. We're going to say again, we're going to, depending on what level of, you know, society we're involved in. And I needed the actor to be open to suggestion, to try it. Um, it's okay to understand that you're going to screw up. It's okay to understand. That's what the purpose of rehearsal is, is to work out the bugs. You're not going to be perfect. Um, you know, it's, it's very important to understand that people are people and they need that chance to work through these things and work into the character. And it takes time and not to get frustrated right off the bat. If they don't have it down, if they don't have what I want, just be willing to work with me to get what I want or to talk to me about where they're thinking things are. You know, I've had people say, but why am I sitting down? And I said, stand up if it doesn't sit if it doesn't feel right stand up then if it does and that's something i learned from katrina katrina said if it doesn't feel right do something different you know you don't want to move with no purpose people don't tend to move across the room just to get from point a to point b without having some reason for doing it unless they're in the middle of an argument and they may pace but even then there's still a a subconsciously intended movement even mm -hmm. if it's not consciously intended there's still some intent so it's just the most important thing i would tell people you know and they'd they'd be memorizing the lines and they'd be like and i don't know what my next line is and i'd have to say wait a minute what's going on in this scene you cannot just memorize your lines you have to understand the scene you have to understand what's going on he just said this what are we talking about and what do you think you're going to say what's your what's your gut feeling and just try to get them to get into the and that And that changes the way you say lines, too, because um, you can change your meaning just by your inflection, and your inflection can be informed by the conversation that you're having. I remember when I started, I was, uh, so I was fortunate, you know, three of my first directors, um, Susie Hummel, um, Christiane, and, and you, Jeffrey, and I was completely in sponge mode, you know, trying to, you know, learn as much as I could. And I know that, you know, we talk about the English accent thing, 
if I hadn't done Mousetrap, I wouldn't have been able to do Mary Poppins. Oh, yes. Mr. You Hicks. Know, absolutely. So it, it builds and, and understanding more about the depth of the character and, and the language and things like that is, is, is right. super important. Well, we even had, we would have discussions about what do you think this line means? What do you think he's trying to say? I mean, it's the difference. It's an old Benny Hill joke. I, I grew up, my family loved watching Benny Hill. And I remember this thing and it was, um, what is this thing called? Love? And he'd say, no, no, no. The line is, what is this thing called love? And it all depends on where you put that karma. Right. So it's, I mean, it would be, that's, we would do this during any of our play reads. We would be saying, wait a minute, what do you think he's trying to say? And, and I wouldn't always be right. And somebody would say, well, I think this is what's going on. And, oh, well, that makes sense then, you know? And that's the community aspect of what we're doing. And, and just a new actor needs to understand it's a growth process. Nothing's right in the beginning. Don't worry about being a screw up. Be open to suggestion. Be open to trying it different ways. The elephant in the room right now for all of us in theater, and part of the reason that what something that spawned this podcast actually is just being able to get together with uh, with other thespians and and talk about theater. Oh. And it's it's COVID. I know. And, and when are the doors going to open back up? Um, obviously, no crystal ball here. But for you, what has been the most challenging part of of being under quarantine and having those those stage doors shuttered? I tell you, I this morning on my way to work, I put in my flash drive and practiced my lines for My Fair Lady. Because <laughs> I was supposed to be playing the father, uh, Alfred Doolittle. And it would have been the first time trying something with that much of a Cockney accent. Um, and I was like, I don't want to forget this. I don't know if I'm actually going to be doing this role at any point. But I don't want to forget it because I put so much work into memorizing these lines and getting the accent down, and I just don't want that to go through the, out the window. So it's been frustrating. It's and not going to the theater means that I'm spending more time at home doing physical work around the house uh, than I'm <laughs> really not capable of doing. Well, coming up next, we have our in the mix segments, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more about Agatha Christie. Uh, with a special signature cocktail that uh, Greg's going to be preparing for us. So stay tuned, get your cocktail tumblers ready, and we'll be right back with you. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Now it's time for a segment we like to call In the Mix, where our resident mixologist, Mr. Heilman, will be preparing a special cocktail in honor of our guest, Jeffrey Bassett, and his one of his favorite playwrights, Greg What's the name of the cocktail we'll be enjoying today? Well, from a personal perspective, I think, Matt, you and I have um, been involved with Jeffrey for a few years now, um, both in two plays, both Agatha Christie plays. Right. Um, we shared one, and then I've one. done one solo with him, and you've yep. done one solo, right? So tonight's drink is a tribute to Agatha Christie, inspired by uh, one of... Her stories, Orient Express. Now, there's a few recipes you'll find for the Orient Express on the internet. I happen to use the one that I have the ingredients for. So <laughs> That's always <it's>, handy. <laughs> a good incentive. So the recipe, if uh, you're interested, will be posted with the show notes. Um, Scotch-based with some amaretto and some vermouth. Um, it's really, uh, I think it's pretty good. That's yeah, what Cheers, gentlemen. There you go. All right. All right. So this is, uh, yeah, I think it, it goes down super easy. So Too easy. <laughs> a, little, a little too easy. So um, Agatha Christie, yeah. So what um, inspired you, Jeffrey, to, to kind of move towards doing so many Agatha Christie plays? You know, I don't know the last time they had done one before I started doing them. But, you know, having been on the board before... And having been involved in that theater for so long, the biggest thing was, what am I going to get that's going to fill these seats? What kind of a play am I going to get? Demographically, looking at the audience, realizing the majority of the audience is probably 35 and up, probably 45 mm -hmm. and up. Um, and what kind of a play, what kind of a playwright, aside from Shakespeare, which they do, would have been someone that would have been good material, reliable material that people would have come to see. And the first thing I thought of was, you know, murder mystery, Agatha Christie. And I love Agatha. I've got three. As a matter of fact, having gone through and cleaned up my, my paperbacks and my hardbacks just yesterday, I found I have three different Agatha Christie collections. And so I was like, perfect. We'll get Agatha Christie going. And I read 
I read one of the whole, you know, it was a Mousetrap and other plays, and I read the whole thing, and every single play, I was like, I could see a possibility with this. Well, one of the things we were talking about kind of off air was the the idea of, you know, who would you cast? And I'm, I'm thinking Agatha Christie, and I'm kind of blending movies with books, with plays, and thinking, well, who's your perfect Hercule Perrault? And then you pointed out that in a lot of the plays, there's really no... Poirot, there's no marble. Right. Some of the ones that you know, you're familiar. So, what is your take on, on that? And we were talking about some theories of why that why she would have changed things for the plays. Well, you know, and she fills her plays with a lot of red herring. Uh, it's it's misdirection. The most obvious person who would have done it usually is not the person who would have done it. And you put someone like Poirot or Marple in the play, and you're going to be going, well, they they can't be. There's two people out. We can't count them. They can't be the murderers. And you're right. They're not going to be. Um, we did uh, A Murder is Announced, which did have Jane Marple in it. Um, fortunately, there were a lot of other people in that play to point the finger at. Um, but that's probably, I, I assume that might be one of the reasons that she wanted to do it. Maybe another reason would be because, because she could see what kind of growth she could have without having the character, or she didn't want to rely on the character as a, um, a crutch possibly, but just the ability to um, widen the area of suspicion or blur the, the uh, edges of, of suspicion to several different people as opposed to, okay, we know it can't be that one. So let's jump from stage to screen. Uh, we've got Death on the Nile, uh, the new trailer, but it dropped, I think, last week. I've Kenneth, not seen it. Kenneth Branagh's, yes, go out. We'll, we'll put the link in the description of the, uh, the show here. Kenneth Branagh, uh, he did Murder on the Orient Express, Which now Death on the Nile, two of my favorites. Um, I'm really excited to see it. Uh, who is your favorite Poirot? I grew up on David Suchet on PBS on Channel 9, so I always have him in my mind, but several very, very good actors have now played that character. I don't know if there would be one that I would want, somebody I'd want to be playing Poirot. You know, I, I love, you're going to think it's silly, but I love Kevin Klein. He could do any accent, and I'd love to see him play a role like that's that. A great, that's a great choice. Kevin yeah. Klein or, um, or someone like um, uh, Colin uh, Firth. Mm, yes. You know, uh, if they could do the accent. You know, local actors, I'd love to see Scott Ventress do it. Right. <laughs> he could do that. And, uh, you know, I've had my local actor, uh, Miss Marple, was uh, Barbara. I um, can't remember Barbara's last name suddenly from BCT. She did a great job as Miss Marple. Um, but, you know, you make somebody do that as a, an actress. Um, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Judy Dench possibly could do it, but he's someone a little daffier, maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I was thinking locally, Irene. Irene Bach would be an amazing Miss oh. Marple. Irene was so surprising to me when she was she was in uh, A Point With Death. Just a character, the way she just she inhibited, inhabited, inhabited, and by inhabiting, inhibiting. Were, <laughs> but she inhabited the character so well, she just, she gave... The scotch is kicking in. I don't think I had to give her a single note. Oh, I don't think so. I don't think I gave her a single note. She played that character. It's kind of like Christy Jacobson. Mm. Christy Jacobson, when we did a, uh, a Murder is Announced, played this character called Bunny. And I did not think of her as Bunny before we actually cast her. And she was unbelievable. She, she could do so many different roles, too. You can't talk about Christy without talking about Gary. Now, there's somebody oh, yes. who could play a Poirot as well. He could. <laughs> and he played the inspector in A Murder is Announced. Ah. And did a great job at that How as many well. uh, Agatha Christie plays have you directed? Let's see. A Murder is Announced. Uh, Mouse Trap. A point with death, uh, go back for murder. I think at least four or five. Did you do Death on the Nile? I was in Death in on not the Death Nile. on the Nile. Okay, yeah, I was so you've been taking part in several. What was the most challenging? I know that the one that that you uh, you and I did together was Go Back for Murder, where the characters had to age and then de-age and oh. then back and forth. It's what sixteen years, I think. And Something I was like one that, of the yeah. few characters that didn't have to do any of that. Nonsense. Well, you were dead. I was dead <laughs> half the show. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that. that that was really uh, difficult because of the fact that we had such quick changes to do and making sure the actors had the right costumes, the right hairstyles, the, being in the right position, uh, having the right scene, having pictures down and pictures up, um, you know, clearing certain things off the set. That was really labor intensive. 
But I think probably the hardest play to direct out of all of them was Mousetrap. And the reason was it has a reputation. It is the longest running play mm-hmm. in the world. And I did not want to mess that up uh, because there was such a high expectation about how that play was going to be done. And everything down to, I spent so much time in sound effects. I spent so much time on, I was so proud of that window I did with, this, with the saran wrap stuff that you shrink wrapped. Uh, and hand-painted all the little corners of it with snow so it looked like it actually piled up because I wanted everything to be as perfect as possible, which I, you know, for every play. Do you feel that things like sound effects and the set almost become their own character? Oh, they do. They do. I mean, just imagine if you had Appointment with Death without that wonderful set that Tina Henley Hicks had done for mm, us. Incredible. Or Mousetrap without the, without the snow in the windows and the fogged-up windows. Or, um, you know, Appointment with Death, uh, I mean, A Murder is Announced, we had to have very, very specific lamps because they were a central, central part of this. Hmm. So props, I mean, you have to be so, you have to pay so much attention because it's an Agatha Christie play. You never know what's going to be the central focus of the play. One thing, uh, yeah, I mean, Agatha Christie's, uh, she had an amazingly interesting Life, mm-hmm. life um, beyond the beyond the career. Yeah, and one of the things I think that because um, you always look for realism in shows and, and entertainment, and her knowledge of chemistry that tied into the poisons that she put into um, the shows was just it was spot on because she had that that um, background and that knowledge. So it was always something that was super realistic, you know. That and and I think. That's one of the things that, that makes her plays, I mean, I think timeless as well. Do you think that your background with the law led you or maybe was uh, what piqued your interest in doing the murder mystery? How realistic have you found some of her plays? Have you done any that involved courtrooms, well, the, judges, etc.? When we did, um, oh gosh, which one was it? Was it Mousetrap? Uh, the whole story, the whole background story about um, the kids and foster care and all that stuff. That was mousetrap. All yep. that stuff just was like, oh wow, I did dependency for years and all this stuff was coming back to me. The social worker and all, and the teacher not reporting things. Mm-hmm. And all this was coming back to me saying, this is, yeah, this is stuff I work with on a daily basis. And you've been a foster father. Oh yes. And adopted three sons. Yes. So personal connection to a lot of her work. Oh yeah. But you know, she you're right. She did she did a lot of research and as a matter of fact when she was doing appointment um appointment with death um took place in Jordan, Ephesus, that area and she and her husband um had traveled a lot in that area before mm-hmm. the play was even written. Yeah, I remember there was a documentary a PBS documentary I think about her and I remember we had just wrapped up appointment with death and I remember seeing that part and and it it looks so familiar, you know. It, oh yeah. And uh, Tina did such a wonderful job on, on the set to make it look like we were in the desert. And yeah. It was, it was fantastic. Well, we had, I mean, we just had the right actors in the right field for Pith Helmets with Christy Jacobson and, and uh, you know, Robin Abile wearing the, the Bedouin garb. Bregoman. Yes. And so. we, can't, we can't forget Arab Boy. Of course. Oh, yes. Our associate producer. Sir Quinn. Hello there. <laughs> <laughs> well, a cheers to uh, Miss Christy, gentlemen. Coming up next, we've got our In the News segment. We're going to take a look at uh, some current events coming out of Tinseltown. So stick with us, and we will be right back. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to Heilman and Haver. We're here with our guest, Jeffrey Bassett, talking about um, an issue that's um, come to the forefront of the news over the last week um, from the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences, uh, tying in the film part of our um our screen part of our stage and screen podcast um so the academy has announced that they wanted to introduce a diversity clause into films to be considered for best picture starting in 2024 the to be considered for best picture the academy wants to have someone from an underrepresented underrepresented group as either a lead or main supporting character or a certain segment of lower, um, lesser characters or st- or crew for the film um, from these underrepresented. And by underrepresented, it's a it's a broad category. It's Native American, Middle Eastern, North African, Hispanic, Asian, 
um, LGBTQ uh, women um, and, and a number of other groups that they have identified as underrepresented. So I wanted to talk about this with, um, with the group here and see what we think uh, about this. Now, there's a few things to note. First of all, it's only for pictures to be considered for best picture. And second of all, it starts in 2024. So the next few years are um, not, uh, not part of this new arrangement. So uh, what do you guys think? Um, is this the right direction for the Academy to go? Obviously, they've been criticized in the past few years. Um, Oscars so white, um, underrepresentation of, of best actors and actresses. Is this the right kind of thing to do um, to get some more of that diversity? Uh, my question is, is how many directors are going to care? Uh, how many directors are going to say, I'm just going to make art the way that I see fit and essentially to hell with the best picture category um, with the advent of online streaming services like Amazon and Netflix, where it's direct to consumer is the Academy Awards as relevant as it once was. Does that stamp of best picture or nomination for best picture even really carry that much water anymore? So maybe it's a non-issue altogether, but I'll throw it to our guest. Uh, we were chatting about this on the break, and, and Jeffrey had some really great points on this one. Well, we were talking about Kirstie Alley getting lambasted by her, uh, for her ideas. And, you know, I think it's... Um, there's uh, an actor friend of mine locally who got into an online flame fest, for lack of a better word, with somebody else over this exact same issue. And, you know, the concept that if you have a, a, a black actor and a white actor who are both equally capable, uh, you know, shouldn't you be giving the role to the black actor as a minority? And everything has to be taken in context, number one. Uh, you, for example, just, just throwing something out there, you have a play like um, uh, Glass Menagerie. And you have, oh, let's say we have Christine Salo as the, the mother on the, on the, uh, uh, in the cast. And you have, uh, oh, I don't know, just uh, Ronnie Wolf uh, as the sister, Amanda, or as the mother of Amanda. I forget which one's which. Um, and then you have uh, Matt here as the brother. And then you bring in Black Boyfriend. And then you go, wait a minute, what year was this place set? You, ha you can't just take this material and say, okay, we're going to make sure that there is rigid requirement here that you do this to make sure that our numbers are even, to make sure that people are, are equally represented without regard for things like when was this set? Um, can we realistically perform this play in this fashion? Um, and when you turn around and you say, we're going to make a requirement as opposed to an aspirational goal, you're really putting handcuffs on the artistic abilities of the directors and on the material itself. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for young kids of, of all races and um, to to be able to look at the screen and see somebody that represents them. But it, it, in my opinion, it's, it's done better when the art is directed more towards that. So, I mean, like a Black Panther, well, or something I mean, like where you have a, a black superhero, where right. is where someone who's who's young and black can look up at the screen and see somebody that they can aspire to be that has principles and characteristics, not somebody that's forced into something, you know, that's maybe awkward. But that well, had to be that had to be cast with a black cast mm -hmm. for that role. It couldn't have been cast any other way. Where is it set? It's set in Wakanda, which is this this fictional country in in South Africa. It couldn't have been set anywhere else. It couldn't have been set with a different cast. Uh, it, it's like, you know, I was talking about also how um, there was an article on uh, one of the online sites today that I was looking at uh, that was talking about Timothy Chalamet and uh, Army Hammer and why did the director cast straight actors to play these roles? Well, first of all, the Army, Army Hammer character, the older man, is not necessarily gay or straight. He's omnisexual. He's the father. object of affection. Yes, and, and the Timothy Chalamet character, you start off thinking that he might be straight, and he ends up having this affair with this older student. Does it matter to me that the actors in their private lives are gay or straight? Does it detract from the story that I saw? No, it doesn't. Um, 
I just think that when you start setting limits, when you start counting numbers, that you're not necessarily doing a service with regard to the quality of the product. There's a lot of purists out there. And on both sides of the argument, really, uh, I remember the uh, argument came up about uh, the next James Bond. Daniel Craig's going to be, this is his last film. They're talking, they're throwing names out there like Idris Elba. Yes. um, A fantastic actor. Uh, They're also talking about making Bond a female. Now, as, as a fan of the original Ian Fleming novels, I've got a lot of issues with how far they've diverged from the storylines well, <laughs> starting in the 60s. Yes. But could Idris Elba play Bond? Absolutely. It really makes no difference. Could a woman play Bond? Bond is such a masculine, some would say misogynist character. Does it destroy chauvinistic, the character, yes. chauvinistic, uh, at least in the films? Um, it, it, does it destroy the whole fi- fabric of the storyline and the character itself? Now, so, see, this is the same argument that they went through with Doctor Who. They said Doctor Who, um, Jodie Whittaker played Doctor Who this past two seasons. Oh, my God, a woman. Well, if you've read... If you've watched Doctor Who for the past God knows how many years, it's been hinted at by the character it's, uh, himself throughout the series. Um, it's always been a possibility that it could be a woman. It's always been a possibility that the character could be homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, polysexual, polyamorous, whatever. It's always been hinted at uh, because it's the nature of, of who the Doctor is. And we don't know that he's never been a woman before. So I had no problem buying that. But Bond, I agree with you. I think about Bond and I think about it's a male agent. That's the character. James Bond. How do you change it to Jane Bond? What do you do? But you could write new films, new content with strong female actors. Which Absolutely. you've done, yes. Right, right. And not have to change um, something that's been a certain way or meant to be a certain way. Not try to try to fit that in just for the sake of fitting it in it's or checking it, boxes but yeah. again i mean certain things like you can't take a classic like dr zhivago which takes place in russia uh in the what 18 i don't know when it takes place late 1800s and and all of a sudden change it and put in a black cast to make quotas or it doesn't work it just doesn't work with the material and and i i'm all for inclusion i mean for god's sakes i'm gay what, what am i gonna say but I'm just saying that you have to look beyond numbers. You have to look at material. You have to think, does this work? Can I have a, 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 a black and white mixed family uh, in 1930s in Paper Moon or in Hill Mockingbird? I can't have a, a, a black Atticus Finch and a white um, scout. It doesn't work. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have happened. And the story is about persecution of a black man in the first place. So I can't cast it that way, no matter how good they are. I have certain things that have to be um, kept true. Yeah. So I, I mean, I understand what the Academy is trying to do. I, I understand what they're reacting to. I just don't think it's the right way to do it. I, I think they should challenge the content creators to create films and other media that show underrepresented folks in stronger roles. Right. I, I totally roles. agree. I mean, it's, it's, a, it, it, you have to start back from the directors. You have to get back to the, to the playwrights, back to the, mm-hmm. to the authors and, and have them bring forward the material. Well, and I think they could also just simply make this happen with the selections that they make. There's an awful lot of films out there. That's the other thing. They could do it organically and say, you know, without setting any standards for the creators, do it on the other end and say, listen, this is just who we're nominating and set a standard that way. We'd love to get your take on this. Uh, this is one of those topics that has strong feelings on both sides. So please uh, find us on our Facebook page. You can email us. Both of our uh, those uh, links are in uh, the description for the show. And uh, we're going to return to this topic during our next show and, uh, and get some audience reactions. So uh, this is actually pre-recorded, so we can't take any calls. But be nice. Hope that doesn't ruin it for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's keep everything PG. And uh, we know there's a lot of uh, emotion on both sides of this topic. We're sure there is. So, uh, But uh, make sure that it's a, a fit uh, for a broadcast. We thank you for that. And uh, we're going to be back with our uh, final wrap-up uh, segment, uh, some more fun questions with uh, Jeffrey Bassett, our uh, guest here. Uh, we're having a lot of fun, and uh, we're glad you're joining us. So uh, come right back, and uh, we'll be wrapping up Heilman and Haver.
Hey, welcome back, everybody. We're going to wrap up this show like we're wrapping up every show with a curtain call segment where we've got a couple of fun little questions for our guest before we let them go. So, Jeffrey, a uh, quick uh, couple of little, uh, you know, kind of flash questions here. What? So, what's the last thing you do before you step out on stage or before the curtain goes up? Deep breaths. Deep, deep breaths. And well, no, the very, very last thing, pee. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've got one of those bladders. Hopefully not. That, like, hopefully not backstage. Really, yes, really. <laughs> I have to run to the restroom, make sure I'm just ready, but then just deep breaths and, and just kind of like, I got this. I got this. You haven't missed a cue yet, have you? You know. Yes, once. I was playing. There's a game called Bananagrams, and we were playing that at BCT, and it was like, oh shoot, and I ran out on stage. Yeah. One time. That's all it took. You pulled a pair of a genie. If you could... Inside mousetrap. Sorry. (laughs) If you could direct one person, alive or dead, who... Or or act with. We'll expand it a bit. uh, One person, alive or dead, who would you most like to work with? Ooh. You know, Catherine Hepburn. Hmm. I love both of the Hepburns, Audrey and Catherine. Uh, but just Catherine Hepburn. Oh, she's just one of those actors. Uh, zany, nutty, one of my favorite, um, uh, Bringing Up Baby, one of my favorite movies of all time. Just love that play, just madcap. But she also had just that ability to bring that sensitivity to, this, to the characters. Can you do uh, Catherine Hepburn for us? Oh, the calalalays are in bloom. I, I, I carried them on my wedding day. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> I, I did not know you were going to do that. Sorry. <laughs> you didn't know I could do it. Yeah. All right. If someone was going to make your life into a film, who would play you? You know, I discussed this question with Michael, and he said Nathan Lane. I said Nathan Lane's too old. Uh, Jesse Tyler <laughs> Ferguson. Mm. From um, Modern Family, because he's very much, he's, yeah, yeah, you watch Modern Family. I, I see myself in him so many times when I'm, I'm watching that show. Well, Jeffrey, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed Th- it. Thank you for joining us. And uh, thank you also to Quinn Heilman for his assistance, our associate producer. Be sure to visit our Facebook page linked in the description below to join the conversation. You can access the drink recipe from today and more fun stuff. If you'd enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, and join us again next time on Heilman and Haver. <laughs>